Hello there, old and new friends. Welcome to Divine Musing, episode 22, Morning Lost Childhood. I am Destiny Rambo Corey, and I am so thankful that you have joined me for this journey into scripture, literature, poetry, and prayer as we view them through the light of transformation and growth. Here's something I've been thinking about lately. This musing will begin and end with two poems from this beautiful little book titled Songs of Innocence and of Experience uh, by William Blake. I love this little book because it has all of the original illustrations in it that William Blake did to go along with the poems. I highly recommend it. It's beautiful and it's little. I love little things. Okay, so we are gonna open with a poem from this book titled The Little Boy Lost. Father, Father, where are you going? Oh, do not walk so fast. Father, Father, speak to your little boy, or else I shall be lost. The night was dark, no father was there. The child was wet with dew. The mire was deep, and the child did weep, and away the vapor flew. Recently, I was doing some research for a previous musing, and I stumbled across a story in scripture that I was unfamiliar with, which is pretty shocking considering that I've been reading the Bible since I was about five, and uh, somehow I either missed this or I breezed by it without fully understanding what was happening. Uh, The story is about a man named Jephthah, and it begins in Judges 11. I considered writing a synopsis to share, but the way it's written in scripture is so thorough, I'm just gonna read it uh, in its entirety out of the New Living Translation. And just so you don't zone out on me, because I know I would, I will skip over some of the historical bits that aren't relevant to today's topic, but we will begin with verse one. Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also had several sons, and when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he had a band of rebels following him. At about this time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. When the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elders said, come and be our commander, help us fight the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to them, aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Because we need you, the elders replied. If you lead us in battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders, let me get this straight. If I come with you and if the Lord gives me victory over the Ammonites, will you really make me ruler over all the people? The Lord is our witness, the elders replied. We promise to do whatever you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him their ruler and commander of the army. At Mizpah, in the presence of the Lord, Jephthah repeated what he had said among the elders. 
Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammon, asking, Why have you come out to fight against my land? This begins a bit of back and forth letter battle, uh, and we find out that this is over a land dispute that we're told is over 300 years old. King Ammon believed that his land was stolen by the Israelites when they left slavery in Egypt, and for some unknown reason has decided that now, 300 years later, uh, he wants to go get his perceived land back. Jephthah then sends a long letter explaining the Israelites' journey and asking why, if the land was rightfully his, no one had tried to claim it before now. We resume our story in verse 28. But the king of Ammon paid no attention to Jephthah's message. At that time, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah in Gilead, and from there he led an army against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, If you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 20 towns from Aror to an area near Mineth, and as far away as Abel Karamim. In this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites. When Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out, you have completely destroyed me. You have brought disaster on me, for I have made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. And she said, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed, for the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months, because I will die a virgin. You may go, Jephthah said, and he sent her away for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never have children. When she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made, and she died a virgin. So it has become a custom in Israel for young Israelite women to go away for four days each year to lament the fate of Jephthah's daughter. Okay, so that's absolutely crazy, right? <laughs> there is so much in this story to unpack, but I'm going to begin by pointing out a few things that really struck me sideways as I begin to study this story. The first thing to process is the cloud of shame that Jephthah was born under. He was a son of Gilead, which is a rich and rocky legacy to be born into. Rocky in a figurative and literal sense. The name Gilead actually means rocky region. Lord, how many of us have been born into rocky regions that we know as families? Jephthah's born into a rocky region of a family, but his mother is a prostitute. So he's told he basically has no future there or any inheritance, which leads to him fleeing. It's almost like his brothers weren't allowed to actually banish him, so they made him feel awful enough so he would just leave on his own. But then 
They needed him. Yet another parallel many of us can relate to. He's exiled, but he takes that time to grow strong in his physical body, learn the ways of war, and he surrounds himself with other warriors. When the elders of Gilead summon him, you can sense desperation in their pleading for Jephthah to come and lead their armies. I'm sure that there was part of him that was stirred with excitement, knowing he was finally needed, but it had to have been mixed with a lot of bitterness. How many times do we feel similarly with our families or friends? Banished because you don't fit the mold and then sought out because you're seemingly the only one who can help them. Or you're pushed away when things are good and only reached out to when they need something. I've come to realize the toxicity of those kinds of relationships and the ways they will corrode your mind and spirit and start you, they'll just cause you to start saying and doing things that you never would out of desperation. So Jephthah goes and gathers his warriors and the scripture says that the Lord was with him as he did so. But then he makes this sort of bargain with God that if he's given victory, he'll sacrifice whatever comes to meet him when he arrives home. Hmm. Uh, He had only one child, so I just wonder, like, was he expecting a goat to run out and greet him or something? A cat? I I don't know. (laughs) He had one child. Um, The only time in scripture we hear about God actually telling someone to literally sacrifice their child was the story of Abraham and Isaac. I personally believe that the story was more about testing Abraham's obedience and willingness to listen to the guidance of divine more than it was ever about killing Isaac. I like to think that from the beginning, Divine had that ram walking up the mountain and ready to be the offering in place of the child when the angel stopped Abraham's hand. I really don't believe that that moment was a momentary change of mind on God's part. But Jephthah's story is interesting. He goes into battle, setting out a fleece, so to speak, telling God that he will make a sacrifice if the battle is won. I think that distinction is incredibly important to make. God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a lesson in obedience, and no child was harmed in the end. Jephthah's promise was based on a sort of give-and-take relationship with God that caused him to believe that God would honor this sacrifice of his. This is why a works-based faith system never works. It might appear to on the surface, but it comes at the sacrifice of those who did nothing to deserve the destruction it takes to maintain it. As I was reading this story about the fate of this beautiful, kind, sensitive, and bright child, all I kept seeing in my mind's eye were the faces of friends of mine who had been sacrificed, so to speak, for the sake of their parents' conquests, specifically in ministry. I've heard people crack jokes my entire life saying that pastors or ministers' kids are the worst behaved and the most troubled kids, but have we ever stopped to ask ourselves why? I know I have. And uh, this story is the most extreme example of what has happened to these children. Left at home, literally and figuratively, while their parents are out fighting some spiritual war that they will eventually become a casualty of. 
I grew up with both of my parents in full-time ministry. I was homeschooled on a tour bus by a governess, and the majority of my upbringing was under the covering of God's work. The friends I made along the way uh, were usually ministers' children who, uh, who could relate to the life that we lived. Almost all of them had sustained abuse, myself included. Physical, mental, sexual, emotional attacks went unseen as our parents were on the battlefield for the Lord. Now, as an adult who's chosen to do the work and move forward and heal from those traumas, I've processed a great deal of forgiveness towards my parents. They were doing what they believed was part of living out their calling. Um, my parents weren't maliciously leaving me alone with abusers. Their eyes were focused on something that they felt called to. I've heard different ministers say multiple times things along the lines of, I know that whatever I sow into the lives of others, I will reap in the lives of my own children. Um, well, as someone who really enjoys gardening and understands the principles of sowing seeds and reaping a harvest, that would be like me walking over to our neighbor's yard and planting some pepper seeds in their garden beds and then watching our our box and expecting peppers to just grow mysteriously and magically in our box. Um, this mindset has been a trait of ministry families since even before Jephthah. And unless there's a massive shift to a relationship-based faith, a relationship-based faith, sorry, it will continue. When I read the words of Jephthah's sweet daughter when she said, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed, for the Lord has given you a great victory over the Ammonites. I wept. I wept for her, but I also, I wept for myself and my friends. I remember so many times as a child knowing that I was the sacrifice for the bigger picture. I did everything I could to try and find some sense of comfort in that, but it just wouldn't come. So I wept. I, I wept as a child and I wept as I was writing this for the parts of me that were sacrificed for the sake of someone else's battle. This kind of sacrifice doesn't just happen in ministry families or those who have a profound sense of purpose. How many children are sacrificed for the sake of the next fix? Or uh, how many children are sacrificed for the sake of an affair or a business or even a hobby? How many children get thrown on the altar of sacrifice simply because they were unwanted? Sadly, we are living in a world today where there are more sacrificed children wandering around the earth trying to find life and hope than there are nurtured ones. I believe in restoration. I believe in healing and breakthrough and the dawn of a new tomorrow, but I also believe in the importance of mourning, mourning the children we never got to be, mourning what was taken from us when we weren't even there, mourning the joy that was stripped away and the innocence that was sacrificed. The longer we delay our mourning, the longer we carry the weight of the dead. In order to fully lay it down, we have to feel it, mourn it, and then release it. Otherwise, it will only get heavier until we can no longer stand beneath its weight. I love this quote from Charles Dickens out of Great Expectations. 
Heaven knows we need never be ashamed of our tears, for they rain upon the blinding dust of earth, overlying our hard hearts. I was better after I cried than before, more sorry, more aware of my own ingratitude, more gentle. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may endure through the night, but joy comes with the morning. The Hebrew word that was translated as endure in this verse literally means to lodge, to pass the night. Weeping is a necessary process for the night to pass and the sun to rise. I lived too much of my life sifting through the darkness of the night, believing that suppression or denial would be a miraculous ladder out of that hole. It wasn't until I sat with my sacrificed childhood, mourned and buried that loss, that I was able to wake up in the sun and see things more clearly. In the light of daylight rising over the mountain on that lovely little tomb, clarity shines so bright. Clarity says that all is not lost. Clarity points the way to resurrection, restoration, forgiveness, and wholeness. If you are in a place of mourning the loss of your childhood, or if you are tired of suppressing the mourning and need help to let out the tears that will release the bright dawn of tomorrow, then why don't we pray this prayer together? Divine Creator, I come to you today broken and scattered. The weight of the traumas I sustained in my youth have become a burden too heavy to bear. Meet me in my frailties and help me to be able to mourn what was lost once and for all so that I can move forward in life without the weight of the dead. Help me to find the joy that comes in the morning and to learn to walk in forgiveness with those who sacrificed me. Bring the healing balm of heaven to cover my spirit, soul, and body that brings ultimate restoration. I know that you are waiting with open arms to embrace the damaged child within, and so I run to those arms today. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I will leave you with a second poem from this same little book, Songs of Innocence and of Experience, by William Blake, titled, The Little Boy Found. The little boy lost in the lonely fen, led by the wandering light, began to cry. But God, ever nigh, appeared like his father in white. He kissed the child and by the hand led, and to his mother brought, who in sorrow pale, through the lonely dale, her little boy weeping sought. I hope this musing has given you a little something to think about too. Thank you so much for joining me today for Divine Musing. For more information, head over to www.rambocory.com. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find me at facebook.com forward slash Destiny Makes Music or on Instagram and Twitter at Des Rambo Music.